Thanks for joining us online today. We're really glad you're with us. Yeah, Core Church is a place of hope, healing, peace, and purpose. And we want you to come see us at 10 a.m. any Sunday. And if we can be of any support to you, we'd love to connect with you. There's lots of links in the description below, whether that's prayer or support in any way. We pray that this message is going to both encourage you and inspire you. I, uh, Brad, Brad makes fun of me for using this music stand. He, uh, you know, the music stand is kind of like the Thanksgiving of holidays. It's overlooked, uh, it's minimized, it's uh, devalued, and uh, I'm just not as cool as Brad to be able to pull off the nice table, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of old school with this thing, and so uh, thanks for bearing with me. Every time, every time he sees me use this, he cringes. He's like, please, can you get rid of the music stand? I'm like, no. I'm the champion of the music stand, and, uh, but it is great to be with you guys, and I, I just want to encourage you, um, just the contribution and the investment you guys are making in Ethiopia and Guatemala and places around the world, don't discount that, don't minimize that. I've told Brad many times that I, that I believe the, that contribution and that investment, may, the impact and the influence for eternity is far beyond comprehension here. And so I know many times those kind of endeavors, you don't see necessarily the fruit here in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, uh, in core church per se, uh, but I can promise you what they're doing. I mean, you're gonna meet people on the other side of eternity uh, that, that were impacted and touched because you gave, because you served, because you sent your pastor and people over to, to minister to them. And so uh, thank you uh, for doing that. And, and thank you for being a church that is for uh, the nations. Well, the last several months, I have uh, made a decision to start playing golf a little more consistently and a little more seriously for whatever that means, right? And uh, do we have any golfers in here? Anybody play golf? Okay, there, there will be a few that will be able to understand this. And, and part, of, part of this endeavor is for me to, I started taking golf lessons. And, and I already knew that I wasn't good. And then you take golf lessons and you realize that you are far worse uh, than you previously thought. And, and, and golf is one of those games that at any given point in the course of 18 holes, you will ask yourself, I promise you, it doesn't matter how good you are, you will ask yourself, why am I playing this sport? It's, it's the darndest thing. And then you, go, then you go on and you're like, why am I paying decent money to play this sport, right? Uh, decent money to experience embarrassment, shame, insecurities, anger, and frustration. And that is kind of the regular when you're playing golf. I actually had someone tell me a long time ago, if you really want to see someone's truest colors, go play golf with them. And I 100% believe that statement. If you work in HR, uh, go take somebody to play golf and you will see who they are very quickly because it triggers so much within us. Now, one of the things that you have to get familiar with when you play golf is something called a scorecard. And this little scorecard, if you get in your cart, is usually there, and it keeps track of how many times it takes you to get the pesky little white ball into the hole. And, uh, and that, that's how you keep track. It, it lets you know how good are you doing that day. How good are you doing compared to the standard that is set before you that is on that 
card. That card measures your progress, if you've done well, if you've done poorly. Now, when I first started playing golf, my scorecard was a little bit different because it didn't consist of how many strokes it took to get the ball in the hole. It consisted of how many balls did I lose or did I find in that day? And I mean, I'm dead serious. And so if I lost three balls in the woods, you know what? I'm three under, I'm three under. If I found four balls after that, I'm one up, right? I had a different scorecard. Now, about 10 years ago, I started working out, doing something called CrossFit, and my scorecard in relation to that was, did I beat so-and-so in a workout? Or did I get a PR in a deadlift or bench or power clean? Now at 45, I have a different scorecard. My scorecard is, did I show up, right? And did I sweat? Okay, success, it's a win, right? I have a different scorecard now. But here's the deal, scorecards are necessary and important because they do help us measure against a specific standard. And they do represent a real reflection of how we're doing against that standard. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, we all carry a scorecard. We all carry our own version of what matters and what deserves to be counted. We all carry a scorecard that represents our perceived standard of what being a follower of Jesus looks like. We all carry a spiritual scorecard that represents how we measure spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, and transformation. And the reality is, we all probably keep score differently. We all have different scorecards. And much of that is based on our upbringing, our experiences, our traditions, and our personal convictions. Now, I want to ask you this morning, how do you measure your spiritual growth and your spiritual maturity? What are the things that you're scoring? What are the characteristics, attitudes, or actions that you're counting? And for most of us, the, the scorecard is mostly vertical, you know, how we're doing and what we're doing between us and God. Quiet time, prayer, time of worship, journaling, spiritual disciplines in our lives such as fasting and generosity and the public gathering, you know, Sunday worship. But what we're gonna be talking about this morning is how Jesus changed the scorecard. He simplified it, he broadened it, and he even re defined it. And I'm stoked to be here again. And we're, I'm continuing in this series, Inconvenient Serving. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, we're going to be starting in verse 34, and I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. Matthew 22, verse 34. It says this, but when the Pharisees heard that he, and he being Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now, 
When Jesus stated the first commandment, I don't think they were surprised. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.5. They repeated this twice daily. It was known as the, the overarching obligation of each individual Jew. I mean, this, this command is, was a vertical response, a command to give yourself fully, wholeheartedly to God, all of you. Now, I'm sure when Jesus said there is a second one that is equally important, the expert in the law was probably thinking, I didn't ask for a second one, right? And then he was probably thinking, what in the world is he talking about? And then he continues by quoting Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the deal. They knew that command very well, too. But this was the first time that both of these commands were ever recorded together. And most scholars come to agreement that, there, that these are actually two great commandments, that the second wasn't second in importance, just in sequence. And we see in this exchange that Jesus is changing the scorecard for them. He's connecting love for God and love for people on the same playing field and of equal importance. And we see this reflected in some of Jesus's final words in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A new command, a new scorecard, right? Everyone will know that, that you are my disciples if you are very loud on social media. No, that didn't, that's not what it says. Everyone will know that, that you are my disciples if, if you have a version devotional streak, right? No. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you sing the loudest or you can debate faith and make people feel horrible about themselves because you win, right? No, that's not what it says. It says, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And what Jesus is revealing to the religious leaders and to us is that this horizontal relationships is just as important as the vertical. And the horizontal, listen, actually bears witness to the reality of the vertical. How we treat people, how we respect people, how we love people, how we serve people, how we interact with others, if and how we show grace, if and how we speak life and encouragement. This is the truest expression of our faith. Listen, the horizontal expression of our faith definitely flows out of this vertical connection, so don't get me wrong there. But vertical faith without horizontal love is incomplete, is lacking, is misfiring, and I, I would say it is very dangerous because it leads to self-righteousness, it leads to spiritual arrogance, it leads to spiritual superiority. You know, all the things that people are drawn to Jesus by, just kidding, right? No, love for God is best demonstrated and authenticated by loving one another, by loving those around us. And so what Jesus is saying, don't claim adherence to commandment number one if you are not committed to commandment number two. 
And this isn't the first text that, that Jesus elevates the dignity and the value of relationships in our lives. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speaks many times to the importance of loving our neighbor, even loving our enemies. And in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he provides a pretty extreme example of our horizontal life being mission critical. And it says this, he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gifts. Wow. So, so before you engage in any kind of sacred action like communion or, or, or giving a, of a gift to God, before you do any of that, before you worship, before you go vertical, go take care of the horizontal. If it's necessary, take care of this. Love God, love one another. You know, I, when I was five days old, I came to church. <laughs> I was in the church since I was five days old. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and any time there was an activity or event at the church, I was there. And I grew up in children's church and Sunday school, and, and we had like, we had flannel graph Jesus, by the way, and like, I know like kids today, they don't understand like just how progressive and innovative flannel graph was at that time. Like, like Jesus was like coming to life on that board, right? I mean, like people don't get it. Uh, I had puppets. I mean, I, we, we had it all, you know, going on then. But I look back as my spiritual development in the early days. And a lot of that development, whether it was the, the chart that gave me the star for showing up or the star for bringing my Bible or, you know, I had all these stars and all these different things that, that I was trying to achieve. But a lot of what was developing within me was an awareness that the vertical was the only thing that mattered. And again, I, I, I don't blame my teachers. And, and at that time, I, I don't think I was fully aware of maybe what was being built and, and rooted in me. And, but but here, here's what I noticed in my life, especially as I became a teenager and moved into my college years, is that I divorced the vertical from the horizontal. I'll be selfless with God, <laughs> and then I'd be selfish with others, right? I'd be humble with God and arrogant with others. I'd be holy with God and unholy with others. I'd ask for forgiveness and grace from God and then not show it to others. I'd worship God with my prayers and my songs, and then I'd go out, disrespect, and scream at my parents like a lunatic, right? And although I'm sure it was well-intentioned most of the time, that faith paradigm that I embraced was unhealthy, unbiblical, and well as hypocritical. It's really the perfect picture of hypocrisy. And this is the very thing that Jesus is confronting here. This is the very thing that Jesus is confronting in the religious leaders and the Jews of that day, that the vertical and the horizontal should not be divorced from one another. They should be synced up. They should mirror one another. They should be aligned. The Apostle Paul speaks to this very thing and really is building upon what Jesus just taught us in Galatians 5, 6. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts Almost sounds like something that makes it on a scorecard, right? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
I want to be like, Paul, seriously, the only thing that counts, perhaps he meant one of the things that counts, right? Another translator actually puts it this way. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love means everything. You see, for ancient Jews, circumcision was the defining characteristic of someone in covenant with God. And for those embracing the new covenant that's found in Jesus, the defining characteristic is faith expressing itself through love. It's not coincidence that the New Testament provides so many verses that speak to how we to express our faith in love to others. I mean, so many. Many, many people call them one another verses, right? First, First Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Ephesians 4, 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And that is just a few. And there are so many, so many more one another verses. So many scriptures committed to faith expressing itself through love and how we interact with others, how we express our faith in relationships horizontally. So Paul and Jesus are telling us, if you and I want to fully assess our faith, if we want to evaluate our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity, our relationship with Jesus, we need to look on how we interact and treat other people. Because the true condition of our heart is visible in our interactions with others. And so I want us to process this a bit and answer a few questions that I think will help us evaluate our faith a bit better. Here's the first one. Are you less irritable or more irritable than you used to be with others? Do you speak life to others around you or are you more commonly critical and negative? And by the way, these are gonna, these are gonna hurt all of us, so just uh, settle in. <laughs> Do you give grace and forgive easily? Or are you holding on to grudges? Are you becoming more patient with others or growing more impatient? How do you treat those different than you? How do you treat those you disagree with or they disagree with you? How do you treat those in close proximity to you? Family, spouse, relatives, coworkers. Do you tend to believe the best about others or assume the worst? And listen, these are, <laughs> these are tough questions for all of us, but I do believe that the answer to those questions will shed some light on the condition of our heart and the condition and the health of our faith. Commandment one, vertical. Commandment two, horizontal. And as the writer of James wrote, faith without works is dead. I mean, faith without the expression of God's heart and God's love is dead, is useless, is empty, is without life and vitality. You know, I do a lot of weddings uh, as a pastor and 
And, uh, and actually, I've done very strange things. I used to live in Las Vegas, and uh, I mean, had, had some moments, had some moments uh, as far as weddings goes. I never dressed up as Elvis, gonna go ahead and clarify that. Uh, no, you're thinking it, no. Um, but I can tell you, I mean, I would, I would almost say probably 80% of the weddings that, that, that I performed, the text of 1 Corinthians 13 comes into play. I mean, almost, it's almost always there. And what's interesting is almost like we just reserve that text for like a, a marriage relationship, but it's supposed to be beyond that, right? And, and it says this, and, and I don't have this verse on the screen. I, I did a late ad here. And it says this, I'm just gonna read the first few verses. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans, which by the way, sounds awesome, and possessed all knowledge, which would be huge, right? And if I had such faith that I could move mountains, faith, right? But didn't love others. I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could, I, couldn't, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And I'll stop there. And, and that, that text is so powerful because I think here, as we, we're living the Bible Belt, right, and, and there is a lot that has been based as I've, I've grown up in the church and I've been here a majority of my life, is there so much here. We're very good at this right? But if it does not have this that is corresponding and congruent with God's heart and his plan and his love for others, then it is like a clanging gong, right? It is nothing. If we commit to the vertical and not the horizontal, we're like a hamster on a hamster wheel, going nowhere and accomplishing little with our faith. And here's what I'm learning, that faith expressing itself through love is really the most defining and clarifying attribute of our faith. It speaks to the depth of our faith. It speaks to the breadth of our faith, meaning, meaning how, how much impact and influence is it carry? How much light am I giving out? It is an indicator of true transformation, whether or not it is happening in our lives. I'm also learning that faith expressing itself in love and loving others is very, very inconvenient. <laughs> And some of you know that. It can cost you time, it can cost you money, it can cost you energy, it can cost you emotions. Faith expressing itself through loving others is what inconvenience serving is all about. When I think about this, I, this kind of faith and this kind of inconvenience serving, I, I think about a, a few guys in our youth ministry back in Las Vegas. I think of Dominic, Matt, and Andrew. And I think about them because we had this student that started coming to our, our youth ministry by the name of Anthony. And Anthony like showed up out of nowhere. I mean, literally, we're kind of like, where, where did Anthony come from? We had no connection. No one knew him. Uh, his, his mom just brought him uh, one Sunday morning. We did our, our student ministry stuff on Sunday mornings at that time. And, and, and Anthony, he, uh, he had a serious brain injury that happened when he was younger. And there was actually like a physical scar of that, that brain injury. And, you know, he was socially awkward, uh, very to himself, uh, could, could be bizarre, a little bizarre at times, right? But I can tell you one thing, he was very alone. And he showed up 
And you could almost like feel like just longing to belong, longing to connect. And thankfully, Andrew, Matt, Dominic, on that first Sunday sat by, sat by Anthony. And what started as they just sat by him that first Sunday, they began taking him to church, taking him to student ministry events, going to lunch afterwards with him, paying for his lunch. I mean, honestly, loved Anthony so stinking well. And here's the deal. Anthony could be unbelievably annoying. And Anthony could be unbelievably inconvenient. Uh, I mean, that, that was just, I mean, once he knew he belonged and once he latched on, it elevated, right? And, um, but they did it well. They brought him to our small group. I mean, it, it was just awesome to watch their love and their friendship and their care for, for Anthony. And they protected him and, and they, man, they encouraged him. But I'll never forget, we went to church camp and Anthony came with maybe one shirt, the shirt he was wearing and the pair of pants that he wore when he showed up for camp. And, and they, you know, they, they soon realized that. And, and so they, they went and they used, to, they used to sell concessions out of their dorm room <laughs> to make money. It's really, really funny. They're very entrepreneurs. Uh, they were... Uh, but they're like, we're gonna, we're gonna take this money and we'd like to go to Walmart. We wanna buy Anthony some, some shirts and some pants, some new shoes. Just, we, we need to get him some stuff to be able to, to make it through camp. And I, I, I look back on, on that moment and so many moments through how they loved Anthony well. And let me tell you, I, I have no idea, have no idea where Anthony is today and how his faith is today. I'm not 100% sure of that, but I am 100% sure that what he saw and experienced was Jesus through those guys. And I also believe, well, I look back on, on their faith in their life, and I have to believe that when they were expressing their faith and love to Anthony, that their faith was so alive, that their faith was so rich, that their faith was, was coming into form when they were showing those acts of kindness and com compassion to Anthony. So how do, we, how do we serve and love inconveniently and consistently like Dominic, like Matt, and like Andrew? How can we marry the vertical with the horizontal in our spiritual lives? What must we embrace and choose to live out our calling to Christ-like love and service. And here's the first thing. We must choose compassion. We must choose it. In Mark 1, we read about a man who had leprosy and found Jesus, and he was begging Jesus to heal him. Now, those of you know, leprosy was a death sentence physically, relationally, and socially. He was excommunicated. He was labeled beyond imagination. He was ridiculed. He was ostracized. He was alone. He was hopeless. So we have this man who no one would have approached or allowed him to approach them, come to Jesus screaming to be healed. And he says in that text, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Man, I, I, I go to that moment and I think about what I would do. You know, how would I respond? How would I react in that moment? How did Jesus respond? We, we read in Mark 1, 41, it says, move with compassion. Jesus reached out and touched him. He said, I am willing, he said, be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man 
was healed. Jesus chose compassion. Here's the deal. Many times we read these texts in the gospel and we totally discount that they were living life, maybe not exactly as we're living life, but like we're living life, right? I mean, I'm sure that one of the disciples had an itinerary. (laughs) You know, we've got to be here. We've got to do this. We've got to get to so-and-so. They could have, they could have, this, this moment could have easily been seen as a major inconvenience and interruption that Jesus, our teacher, our leader, he has no time for this. He can't deal with this right now, right? So many logical reasons to keep moving. But how does Jesus respond? With compassion. It's interesting, the, the word compassion in the Greek is splachna. Which, which is a funny word to say, uh, but, but, it, but it means to be moved in his stomach. Or kind of like there was a pit in Jesus' stomach. And it's this deep love and this heartache for someone. One of the translations says Jesus was filled with compassion. And that translation makes me think about myself when I when I encounter those that may be interrupting my path or may be seen as an inconvenience, what am I full of? What, a, what, what is filling my mind and my attitudes? And so I ask you this morning, what are you filled with when you have those moments? When you see a neighbor getting evicted out of their house, what are you filled with? When you see a 16-year-old who's pregnant, what are you filled with? When you see a friend, a coworker, a family member who is struggling with addictions, what are you filled with? When you see a kid at school, students, who no one wants to sit with, what are you filled with? When you see a kid at school who who takes on a lot of hurtful words and a lot of mean stuff, what are you filled with? When you encounter a man or woman who everyone runs away from, what are you filled with? Judgment, pity, self-righteousness, anger, annoyance. Listen, as a follower of Jesus, your perspective, your heart, your vision for others and what you're filled with should be distinct, should be different, should be Jesus-like, right? When you encounter people and situations that others might see in a more negative or indifferent way. We are called as followers of Jesus. We are commissioned as followers of Jesus to a higher standard, a supernatural, abnormal, countercultural response. We must choose compassion. Love God, love people. And if you're like me, you may be saying, Jeff, listen, I'm just not very compassionate. That's not how I'm wired. I'm an Enneagram whatever, right? That's just not my personality. Right. Um, you know, you may be like, Jeff, I, 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 don't, I don't even have enough compassion to give my spouse a puke bowl when they're sick. Right. I mean, I mean, I can only do what I can do. Right. God created me this way. Some of you live with that person. Uh, no. And here's the deal. I get it because it's not my natural default either. But this is something that has to have supernatural God-empowered transformation in your life. I think Jesus gives us the key to getting and living with a, living with a compassion-filled life. If you look in verse 35 of Mark 1, we see that Jesus got up while it was still dark and went out to spend time with God in prayer. There's your vertical, right? Jesus looked up before he looked out. 
The vertical happened, then the horizontal flowed out. Prayer is the fuel for a compassion-filled life. It'll give you the power, the awareness, the softness of heart, the eternal perspective, the holy discontent and concern that God wants to give you for us to be able to have that compassion of God that, by the way, we have received to be able to extend that compassion to others. It starts with prayer. I have a prayer quote that I wanna share and they don't have the slide, but it hit me as I was driving here this morning and, and Eugene Peterson, he, he writes this, prayer is the way we work our way out of the comfortable but cramped world of self and into the spaces of God. I'll read that again. Prayer is the way we work our way out of the comfortable but cramped world of self and into the spacious world of God. And prayer opens our eyes. It opens our hearts and it gives us the fuel and the power to be able to see people as God sees people. Now, I want you to think about how this story would have read differently and how this man's life would have been differently if Jesus just felt compassion for this man. And that was it. Think of the scriptures read this way. Filled with compassion, Jesus looked at his sundial and realized he had a 2 p.m. tea time at Battle Creek and gave the man a rain check. I mean, or filled with compassion, Jesus rolled his eyes, shook his head, and asked for some Lysol, right? Or, or filled with compassion, Jesus turned around and ran the other way. That's not how the scripture tells it. And what we realize is that compassion without action is incomplete, it's lacking, it's unfulfilled. And we see that as important as it is for my heart to be moved, right? Move with compassion, that's the starting point. I must choose that, but I must also choose action. James 44, 17 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do but doesn't do it, sins. And in these moments of compassion that we have towards others in situations where we don't move to action, we don't do something, we don't respond compassionately to others, we are sinning and being disobedient to God. And in this encounter, if Jesus was just filled with compassion, listen to this. Now I want you to think about this scope of those that you're gonna encounter today, you're gonna encounter this week. If Jesus just felt it and didn't act, this man wouldn't have been cured from this awful disease. This man would not have been able to experience community again. This man would have not been able to go back into his place of worship. This man would not have been able to pursue the dreams that he's had since his childhood. Compassion plus action led to this man's life being changed forever. Cindy Gallup wrote this, the single largest pool of untapped resource in this world is human good intentions that never translate into action. Ouch, right, for all of us. God, let this not be the case for us. Lord, let us pray for compassion. God, soften our hearts, right? But God, also give us the courage, give us the strength, give us the oomph, right, to act upon what we see, to act upon what we know God is calling us to do. And let me tell you, when you step out in faith, when you step out to act, when you're willing to be interrupted and inconvenienced, listen, listen, it will be difficult, it will be challenging, but can I tell you, it will be worth it. Because there are stories of eternity that will be told 
that maybe you will never understood the, the fruit of on, on, on this earth that happened because men and women take a step out and show compassionate action to those around them. And my, my, my challenge for you this morning is would you commit to praying today? Praying for God to give you the compassion, to change your heart, increase my compassion, Lord, soften my heart, but then Lord, give me the courage and the strength to act upon what you are putting in front of me. Here's the deal, you may not be able to do everything you wanna do, but you can do something. I love what the old basketball coach from UCLA, John Wooden says, don't let what you can't do stop you from doing what you can do. Lord, give us courage, give us the ability to act, allow us to see what God has placed in our hands to be used for his glory, to be stewarded, to serve and love others. You know, I think of, I think of Lois, who writes encouragement cards to those that God puts upon her heart. I mean, faithful at it, faithful at it. I think of Matt, who has an extra toolkit in the back of his truck, and he drives around Tulsa looking for opportunities when people are broken down so he can stop and help them. I think of Chad, who, who is always looking for opportunities and will stop in his tracks to pray for anybody that has a need and a prayer request in their life. I, I think of Dusty who, who, leaves out, who leaves out extra food and, and, and different takeout for the homeless guy who lives behind his, work, his workplace. All these moments, acts of compassion that start in the gut, but then it takes the courage for someone to step out and do something about it. Now, these aren't millionaires. These aren't people that have resources beyond our comprehension. No, these are faithful followers of Jesus who are looking for opportunities for the vertical and the horizontal to sync up and to be aligned with God's heart and God's word. So listen, who has God put in your life? Who has God put around your life that you are called to demonstrate compassion towards? Is there a situation or a community issue that requires your compassionate action that you could be a champion of? Is there something that you could do today to extend compassion to someone in your life? What do you need to pray for today? I wanna close with 1 John 3, 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and see his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with what? With actions and in truth. Commandment one, love God. Commandment two, love people. Let us marry together the vertical and the horizontal as we leave this place today. Dear God, we come before you and we pray for compassionate action in our lives. God, help us to not get lulled to sleep by religion. Help us to not get lulled to sleep just by the same old, same old. Help us not to isolate. Help us not to, to hide in our, in our corner and just work on the vertical. God, help us to be out with people in situations and opportunities where we can show your compassion 
to others. God, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us bear a proper and edifying witness to our world and to our neighbors. God, help us, Lord. Give us the strength. Give us the vision. Give us the courage. Give us the fuel. Give us the power to be the people you have called us to be. God, this world needs you. It needs salt. It needs light. It needs hope. God, help us to be the instruments of those things today. God, we surrender the rest of our time together to you. We hope the message you heard both encourages you and inspires you. Yeah, we'd love for you all to come and see us at Core Church at 10 a.m. any Sunday. And if we can support you in any way or you'd like to get connected with us, there are links in the description below. Thanks again for joining us online.